Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Jeremy Black, CMG. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is a senior associate at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the author of well over 150 books, the most by any historian in the Anglophone world. Today, we are speaking about his book, Holocaust, History and Memory. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is, uh, shall we say, the thesis of your book? Well, what I tried to do is, and as you know, there is a massive literature on the Holocaust and, uh, you know, there are very, very, very impressive works. But what I tried to do is both write about Holocaust and then write about in the same book and not as a separate study, how it is subsequently be, been looked at. And in the coverage of the Holocaust itself, um, I tried to sort of nudge, if you like, my account in slightly different ways to some of the uh, other interpretations. Why did you write this book? Because it's a little bit out of your area of um, past interest as a historian. Well, no. I mean, I, partly it comes, as indeed initially my books on slavery came, from my interest in military history. And you know, to my mind, war is not simply a matter of, um, as it were, a relatively equal struggle between regular forces or regular forces and irregulars. I mean, I think that the uh, Third Reich's race war, which is what it was, um, is something that can be looked at from the perspective of a military historian, just as in my books on slavery, and the slave trade, I started from the premise that, as my work on um, the relative effectiveness and ineffectiveness of European military history of that period, that the Europeans were simply not strong enough to acquire um, uh, significant numbers of slaves unless there was a very, very active cooperation of um, African societies. And I wanted to look at that. How does one, if at all, differentiate traditional religious anti-Semitism from the uh, newer racial variety as introduced by the writers Gobineau, Tocqueville's great friend, and Houston Stewart Chamberlain? Well, that's a very good question. And you've obviously read the book. And as you will know, I myself am rather wary. And here I'm going against the bulk of the literature. And, you know, I'm I'm not saying I'm right and other people are wrong. I'm just simply trying to take my own interpretation. I am not so comfortable with the notion that one should see the Holocaust as a form of perverted modernity. Um, And I do think, and I think this is particular, one of the aspects of the book, as you know, is that I discuss a lot the role of Germany's allies. And I think once you look at that perspective and you consider Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Croatia, Romania, then I think that, as it were, more traditional interpretations of anti-Semitism can also be seen as playing a role. Do you agree with such scholars as Hamilton, Kershaw, and Childers that anti-Semitism was not an especially important element 
in the National Socialist electoral support in the German 1930-32 elections? Well, I wouldn't. I wish I could be as confident as that. I think it was part and parcel of the National Socialist um, ideology and popularity. It's often very difficult to tell why people vote one way rather than another, and it's often an amalgam of factors. But I would be wary of writing it out on the account of uh, Nazi popularity. Do you agree with Kershaw that Kristallnacht was not particularly popular in Germany due to the fact that uh, people were scared by the uh, violence of the event itself? I think they, uh, well, some people were clearly excited by it, and there's no doubt at all that, unfortunately, um, the excitement of seeing other people victimized attracted some. But I think what Kershaw is saying is correct, that many people didn't like disorder on their, as it were, their doorstep. But if people down the road disappeared, that was, and were slaughtered somewhere else, then that wasn't so immediate to their concerns. Which school of interpretation in the literature do you favor? The functionalist, um, best represented by the writings of uh, Mommsen, Broshot, and Browning, or the so-called intentionalist, uh, Noakes and Davidovitz? I myself am more um, an intentionalist. I think that obviously um, expedient and individual problems as they arise might help to explain why something happens at a particular place at a particular moment. But I think intentionality was um, a key element. Is not your citing the German army's behavior in the Harrow Rebellion in southwest Africa in 1905 as an influence on his behavior in the world wars, not uh, somewhat post hoc? Well, I think that's a, a reasonable um, uh, question. And as you know, there's been a controversy over that. And there's also been a controversy over the linkage between German conduct in Eastern Europe, German military conduct in Eastern Europe in World War One, and German military conduct in Eastern Europe in World War II. Um, I certainly think that you have a you have to be careful at necessarily drawing causal lines, but there nevertheless can be um, comparisons that are interesting to make. And the um, I personally would be inclined to say, and here we're not so much talking about anti-Semitism, we're talking more about a willingness to brutalize civilians. I certainly do think that there are some instructive earlier examples. I mean, one that has re recently attracted attention is the conduct of the Austrian army in Bosnia in the late 1870s, which was certainly, um, I think one could fairly describe it and to use the modern term, anti-societal. Um, and that was essentially directed against Bosniaks, in other words, local Muslims, rather than being motivated primarily or even partially by anti-Semitism. And in that case, you're talking about after the Berlin conference, 
which authorized uh, Austria-Hungary to occupy Bosnia Herzegovina and the um, the Muslim the local Muslim reaction to that occupation. Yes. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the Austrians were moving in before the authorization. But yes, that's what I'm talking about. And we generally agreed that um, the civilian casualties were in the tens of thousands and included women and children. Uh, it wasn't genocidal, which, of course, was the intention against Jews in World War Two, but it was certainly brutal. And if you're asking me, do I do I think that the brutality of the German and Austrian armies begins with the Third Reich, the answer would be no. Would it be correct to say that you agree with Omar Bartol that the German army was very, very compromised by Nazi racial ideology, as per Jews, Slavs, etc., and that this helps explain the army's behavior during the Second World War vis-a-vis -vis these groups? Yes, I would very much take that view. I think it's fairly clear from my book. It, of course, is part of my interest in the subject as a military historian. And I would also say that um, views of the conduct of the German army, the Wehrmacht in World War II, and indeed, I think it's fair to say, of the uh, German Navy, um, in their treatment of, um, of um, sailors in the water and such like, um, the, the general thrust in the scholarly literature has been, over the last 30 years, very negative. Uh, not simply, obviously, in terms of anti-Semitism. There's a very good book I read some years ago. I'm afraid I'm a bit tired of them, so I can't remember the exact title of the exact author. But, um, on the uh, slaughter of black French soldiers who had surrendered by Wehrmacht units in um, in uh, France in 1940, um, and for, you know, killing for which there was no need or purpose other than a degree of racial hatred. Um, so I think you know, the focus overwhelmingly, obviously, is on the conduct towards Jews. But the Wehrmacht in World War II had a habit of itself being willing to slaughter civilians, uh, whether there was resistance, as in Norway, for example, or whether there wasn't resistance and they just disliked people, um, as in Yugoslavia. I mean, the Wehrmacht conduct in Serbia in 1941, in which they started off by killing about 11,000 Serb civilians, was not... Um, uh, was not, as it were, unrelated to the subsequent uh, uh, escalation of resistance activity. Now, in that particular instance, is it true that uh, an appreciable portion of the Wehrmacht forces in Serbia were actually made up by uh, Austrians? Yes. And yes. there was I mean, obviously, uh, as you know, after the Anschluss in '38, um, Austria is part of the Greater German Reich, um, and uh, people from it are conscripted, as indeed other areas annexed by Germany, such as uh, Alsace-Lorraine in 1940, uh, 1940. The same is true of um, what you're essentially the subtext, as I understand it, was you're asking is: is there is a disproportionate share in the massacre of civilians of 
Austrians and is there a continuation that one can draw in the case of conduct in the Balkans? And I think the case would be, I would argue the case would be yes. Now, let me bring up a question prematurely, merely because it fits in where we are now in our discussion. Why were British and American, I think, I, I believe equally, post-1945, so willing to whitewash the Wehrmacht's um, behavior during the war, and in particular, senior commanders who directly or indirectly um, had lots of blood in their hands? Well, I think there are a number of factors, Charles. I mean, there is obviously, again, and it's interesting when we think about the categories we looked at earlier, there are ones in which you could see as a functional interpretation, we're going to need these people against uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, we are going to need to recreate the Wehrmacht as a what becomes the Bundeswehr. So there's that element of it. There is also the element of, as it were, chaps don't put chaps on trial. In other words, generals are disinclined to try generals. And there's a very good book by Bloxham on the Manstein, handling of the Manstein uh, trial, in which he shows that the British Foreign Office was very keen that Manstein should A, be tried and B, be given a, you know, exemplary sentence, and that the War Office was very unkeen on this. And um, there are some, I did a book on rethinking military history, in which um, I think I cite, and I know I cite one of the British war historians, a, somebody who'd been a senior army officer, uh, reproaching, this is taking a different point of view, reproaching Little Hart, because Little Hart was, you know, very keen on Manstein and Kaderian and all the rest of it. And this chap was saying, you know, these men have got blood on their hands. So there was a, an awareness, I think, as to what had happened. But the, um, I suppose, the scale of the problem facing the occupation authorities, if they were going to try a large number of the Wehrmacht, was a issue and a problem. And it was convenient for everybody to focus on the SS. Now, I think, again, they bought too readily into the myth, and you see the same myth pumped out by um, sort of popular historians, uh, in my rethinking military history, I commented on Messenger's biography of uh, Seb Dietrich from this point of view, and also I commented on the treatment of Rundstedt. Um, so this idea that these are essentially people who are fighting chaps, and that actually the people that butchered uh, Jews were a different sort of person. Now, personally, I think this is ludicrous, self-serving, and a very... Um, dubious, um, but it was obviously very convenient, and unfortunately, it continues to be convenient. Um, I, I heard um, on a discussion on British radio the the anniversary of the of the E Day. Um, I, I was interviewed on my, um, one of the uh, one of the channels, and before me, there'd be some person ring it ring in to say. His father was in the Hitler Youth, and the Hitler Youth was, in his eyes, in his eyes, no different to the Boy Scouts, which, of course, is a ludicrous proposition. But, you know, these kind of propositions are pumped out all the time. You seem to indicate in the book that the massacres in 1941 
by the Einsatzgruppen did not provide a model for future Nazi genocide of the Jews, operationally speaking. Why not? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Why not? I mean, first of all, what we're really talking about there is primarily what I refer to as killing in the field. And that was, from the German perspective, uh, used a lot of men, uh, actually a fair number of, a fair amount of equipment and time, and some at least of those who were involved didn't enjoy it as much as others did. Um, and it seems also to have been, to have been felt that it was not a way to deal with the large concentration of urban Jews in Poland and indeed those from Western Europe and Germany whom they wished to move to, to slaughter. So as you correctly say, you move from killings in the field, although those killings in the field uh, at a certain scale continue right the way through the war. And actually one of the problems with the treatment of World War II's uh, Holocaust, essentially in terms of the camps, is that there can be a failure to underrate that element. But nevertheless, uh, the preponderance moves towards the two different, although the, the end purpose is the same, thing of concentration camps and extermination camps. And very briefly, I mean, you know about all of this. Extermination camps are ones in which people are slaughtered on entry. Concentration camps are ones in which the intention is that everybody dies, but in the meantime, they are kept alive in appalling circumstances and under murderous discipline in order to fulfill uh, job outcomes. How important to the Nazi genocide project uh, during the war was the Wannsee Conference? Well, that's again a very interesting question. I think that, the, quite frankly, um, there was already mass slaughter beforehand. Um, it wasn't, um, the conference wasn't necessary to that process, nor in fact to its change. But it provides an episode which is known about, where the people attending are known about, and where, as you know, uh, crucially, there is the bringing together of people from uh, different ministries, and one of the that's a quite important aspect because under the Third Reich, inter-institutional uh, cooperation was generally pathetic, and it was necessary for the purpose of the Holocaust. Um, so I think that was, to that extent, consequential. But if one say hadn't happened, it would there would still have been the continuation of the mass slaughter. Was there a plausible option of bombing the death camps or the railroad lines leading to the death, death camps in 1943-44 by the Anglo-American powers? Well, again, I discussed this in my book, I mean, you're talking about planes operating at extraordinarily great range. And um, as we are to see with the attempts, you, know, you, you probably know this, there's a recent American book on the subject of American planes 
bombing targets and then flying on to near Poltava in Ukraine and then flying back again, the Soviets proved extraordinarily uncooperative. So I think it would have been very, very uh, difficult. That's point one. Point two, it would have been difficult to achieve uh, the goal that one is requiring. And point three, it would probably not have stopped the slaughter. So if the intention is to stop the slaughter, I mean, ultimately, the only way to stop the slaughter was to defeat the Third Reich. And the way to defeat the Third Reich was to use bombers to take down its war industries and the associated industrial workforce, and also to uh, destroy the Third Reich's armies at the front line. And you can understand that those were seen as primary primary targets. Now, you have a chapter in the book dealing with uh, German allied powers. Of those powers, which one was the most and which one was the least cooperative? The least cooperative by far was Finland. And which was actually pretty much on a par with Finland's general conduct during the war, as you may know. Once they'd reconquered Karelia, uh, the Finns essentially sat on their hands, didn't do very much until in 1944, under Soviet pressure, they changed hands. Well, um, the Finns, as you may know, they initially handed over, I think, uh, in goes to Helsinki, from what I remember. They hand over, from what I remember, 11 foreign Jews. One of them is killed at once. The Finns are furious and demand the 10 others back and refuse to hand over any of, as it were, their own uh, Jews. Um, another country that makes that distinction, though unfortunately a lot of people get killed, but another country that makes that distinction is Bulgaria between, as it were, their Jews, um, who King Boris does not intend to uh, hand over, and those in the areas Bulgaria conquers uh, in 1941 from Greece and uh, Yugoslavia and those it is willing to hand over. Um, as far as, um, as it were, the, um, the uh, more, un more invidious, the unpleasantness, I think you could very much look at the Tiso uh, regime in Slovakia. I think you can look at the Utase in Croatia. I think you can look at the Antonescu regime in Romania um, and obviously um, the more extreme uh, uh, regime that comes in in Hungary in 1944 um, is responsible for handing over the last very big um, uh, number of people that go to Auschwitz. I think it's about 440,000 Hungarian Jews. How does one explain the paradox of the Netherlands in uh, this um, horrible um, situation? First country to have, a, have or demonstrate popular opposition to the deportation of Jews to death camps, and at the same time, a very high cooperation by the Dutch state apparatus in said de deportations. Yeah, and not just by the Dutch state apparatus, also by you know, private individuals uh, being willing to gain benefits from the occupying authorities by revealing where Jews are hiding. Yes, there are a lot of 
as you say, a lot of interesting things, I mean, which are almost for the British counterintuitive. So in other words, the Belgians behave better than the Dutch. Uh, the Bulgarians behave better than the Romanians. Um, now, the first one of those, certainly for the British, is counterintuitive because the British are used to thinking of the Dutch as essentially sort of benign figures. But as we know, it's certainly in the treatment of Jews and for that matter, in recruitment into the Waffen-SS, um, which is higher per capita in Holland than in most of occupied Europe, including Belgium. So I think the probable answer to that is that there was much more pro-Nazi, anti-Semitic, um, Aryan sentiment in the Netherlands um, than people after the war found it convenient to recall. Was not the original German reluctance to look too closely at the manifold crimes committed by them in the Hitler period, uh, historically speaking, the norm? After all, the Chinese, Russians, Japanese, all pretty much refused post-1945, or in the case of China, post-1976, or in the case of Russia, post-1991, to look too closely at the crimes they committed as societies in the 20th century, either crimes vis-a-vis -vis themselves or vis-a-vis -vis other peoples? Well, I think that's entirely correct uh, in what you're saying. Um, I think that the claim of the West German and separately the East German authorities, because the East Germans were just as bad, the claims of both of them to a kind of moral probity based on pushing the Third Reich to one side or aside um, are, is the issue here. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Japanese have never made the comparable amount of noise about being sorry about World War II. In fact, the exact opposite, as we know. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the vast slaughter of Chinese uh, people by Chinese communist governments from 1949 onwards, and you know, we may well be talking about possibly as much as 22 million people, um, is something which China, the Chinese government and Chinese public culture has not addressed. I agree with you on that. Um, it's, it's obviously different in its intentionality. It doesn't make it better, doesn't make it worse, because it's a different context. I mean, what you have got there is a form of, in China, of pursuit of what is what was perceived or presented as class traitors and what were perceived and presented as, as it were, a political fifth column, whereas, in, in other words, people that had actually done the things, although most of them hadn't done a thing, I mean, it was a fantasy. Um, in the case of the Germans and the Jews, the vast majority of Jews had obviously in no way had done a, had done a, you know, one or two of them had been fighting for the Soviet Union as citizens of the Soviet Union. But the vast majority of them had done absolutely nothing, and it was a attempt at genocide. Do you as a historian have any qualms in employing the term Holocaust given its theological origins? No, I don't really. I mean, I think that when you're looking at something as horrific as that, um, vocabulary 
as it were, loses its power to provide you with the full range of terms you would like. And that, as you know, has separately been taken further by the way in which the term Holocaust is now used in an almost indiscriminate fashion by people to describe something they don't like. So, you know, um, a friend of mine who was a Conservative member of Parliament foolishly, uh, who was opposed to what was happening to hedgehogs, foolishly referred to a holocaust of hedgehogs, which was absolutely ridiculous. Um, people have people have used the term to describe the slave trade, which is uh, you know completely ridiculous because the slave trade was you know vile, unpleasant deadly, but the whole intention of it was that the vast number of slaves should survive because their labor was required. Um, and indeed, that was what happened. Um, so, you know, the comparison is an absurd one. But people do, you know, do use these. And then, of course, one has the problem about how, what vocabulary does one find. I find it very difficult, in fact, to decide, you know, should I use the term slaughter? Because that implies you're talking about animals? Should I use the term murder? Because murder scarcely captures the enormity of what was going on. I mean, I found it difficult to do. And incidentally, of all the books I've written, and I've written an enormous number of books, as you say, and many of them have, you know, dealt with and I've described uh, as as necessary the horrors of war. Uh, this is the only book I wrote in which I had a splitting headache all the way through. On the personal response, what really got me, in fact, was not the treatment of adults, because, you know, adults have had a life. Uh, it's horrible if they die unpleasantly, but ultimately they've had a life. What I thought was really got me, really made me feel totally uncomfortable. And I use uncomfortable in a much more physical sense than suggesting that one's trousers are a bit too tight. But what made me very uncomfortable was the treatment of children. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? That we need to go on looking seriously at major episodes in history because they have a lot to tell us, not just about what happened then, but about how subsequent generations have interpreted the past and we have to see ourselves as part of that process and be both searching but also cautious as a result of that. On that observation, which I would like to agree with, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you. And I do hope that of all the books I've written, um, this is one in which listeners will make an effort to read.